This is the Fantastic Books Podcast. The fantasy and sci-fi book review podcast for fantasy fanatics, book nerds, and lovers of lore and stories. Covering some of the most loved fantasy series as well as brand new novels. With your hosts, Anna and Sam. Let's see what we're reading this week. Welcome back, fantastic listeners. This is Sam. And Anna. And we're joined by Brian Asher, author of The Fear of Moncroy. And this week we are covering chapters 16 through 20. Brian, great to have you with us. Great to be back. Man, oh man. <laughs> the All <crut>. right. <laughs> it is getting thick. Love it. Very Cut it with much a knife. So. <laughs> oh, man. I feel like there's lots of thick as blood jokes we could be making here. I know. Something you could really sink your fangs into. <laughs> we actually start this section off with some introspective thoughts here. We have Davion at Count Veructus. He goes to him while he's still in mourning, and they have a very interesting conversation about death and mourning loved ones and the pain we feel, and does it ever get better? And I found that was a very solemn palate cleanse moment from all the action we've been having. And I guess my question for you, Brian, is, is this uh, the advice that you put into this uh, segment? Something you've heard before? Just it was part of your kind of soul and thoughts and emotion coming out onto the page? Uh, I'd say it's a mix, but more towards some things I had heard. I had heard someone talking about they'd experienced the death of a loved one. And when they ran into someone else who had experienced the same thing, they were told that, that it never gets better. Uh, and when I thought about Davion's state, who he is, where he's at, and then uh, the person he's talking to, I figured his personality would be more in line with that. I don't necessarily agree with that. I think that over time you can you know, grow and, and those wounds can heal. But I think for his personality, it was a quote that I was like, oh, that's a really, really good quote for him. Uh, whereas someone like Carneth... He doesn't really, you know, show that type of uh, spirit. He's much more uh, willing to forge ahead. So it was a good way to cast his personality uh, and the difference of his personality to some of the other characters. Oh, I absolutely agree. I think that's great insight where, you know, a character like Davion and uh, Veructus, they're both kind of dreary, slightly defeated personalities, characters who tend to fixate. So for them... I could see them holding on to that pain and it molding to who they are. Where Carnet's someone being so vibrant and bright, someone who really could be easy to change their way and path throughout life could find a different meaning in death. So I think that really worked for those particular characters. I think it's a good reflection of Davion's position too, because I think a lot of being able to move on from grief is like comfort in other people around you, like friends and family. And Davion is so isolated in this community. He, I think, only can ever really think about the fact that he's lost his whole group of waywards because everyone around him is not anyone who he can trust or be vulnerable with or share camaraderie with. So obviously he's not going to be able to get past that or grow. But I do think that Carneth, he's got such like a, an action-based personality. Like you see here, he's going to like put his father's ashes to rest. And I think he's kind of the character who can heal through his actions. Whereas Davion's just going to like sit in it and wallow. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. 
But it was a tough, like, position to put Davion in right in the middle of his, like, thick plot, too, because he's obviously trying to console the person who, like, killed all his friends and is somewhat to blame for his position. So it's really awkward for him, too. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, weird quasi-Stockholm syndrome going on for him there, so. Yeah, he's got to get out of there, man. It's tough. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's hard out here for a Davion, so. Sure is, especially when he's trying to, like, you know, destabilize the vampire core and, <laughs> you know, get closure with his brethren and keep Carnage in line. Funeral yeah, he's, on he's Tuesday. A- yeah. He's, oh, for real. He's a busy man. Busy man. And proms tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so he's in the thick of it. Uh, he also asked Veructus how Fiona got her snare. And I like this little quip back where Veructus says, you spent so much time with Adelina, I figured you'd find out through her. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> she doesn't know. He doesn't know. And it's also, I imagine, a very intimate and personal thing of how, you know, vampires get turned or their snare. So, you know, I almost equivalent it mentally to, like, someone losing their virginity. And so it's just being like, <laughs> you so how'd you get that. turned? You know? Yeah. And it just, <laughs> yeah. Not really something you chat about just over, you know, coffee, so. Yeah. No, definitely not. (laughs) Taboo for sure. Sorry your son died. How did our colleague become a vampire? (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, Davion's just gonna Davion. Yep. Constantly pushing everyone forward. Yeah, I would say he's he's a fairly good sneaky spy, but sometimes he's a little too obvious. I think this was a moment he was a little heavy-handed, but he's trying. For someone who's not, you know, trained in the ways of being yeah. a spy. Yeah. But he does have a pretty good plan here. And you left it off on like a cliffhanger, as you always do, where Davion asked Count Veruticus to help him with something at the next big meeting that they're having, that they're going to coax Fiona into some sort of scenario or situation. Um, and we get that in a later chapter. So I like that you just let us kind of wonder what they're going to be up to until the moment it happens. But then... What we predicted happened. Tasha <laughs> came for Karnith at the end of the chapter. Yeah. And he went down so easily. Didn't stand a chance, man, like a puppy in a bag. <laughs> is that a phrase? That I a don't phrase? know. It is now. <laughs> it is. I mean, he, you know, he was in a bad spot and she's powerful, man. So. Yeah, yeah. I guess Davion really did only leave him one smoke bomb, which is not enough. No. It was so funny because in my head, I was like, distraction gonna get his sword standoff gonna be equals and she was like yoink and again this like shows how powerful tasha is what a unrelenting force she is and so for someone like karnith who's truly capable to succumb to her will and her might i'm uh very wary of when the final confrontation comes forward and what a inevitable threat she'll be I'm not going to say anything, <laughs> but I do. I did have a question here. Um, when you were drafting up or writing, did you ever have ideas of them having a big fight here? I did initially. Yeah, I did. I thought, um, you know, I wanted him to have some kind of way to, to fight back. And I thought, OK, maybe he can get his sword and this will happen. But when I really played it out in my mind, the situation he's in and her level of power, the fights she's been in, 
you know, and what she's capable of, who she's capable of defeating. And the fact that he's in this, like when you're in a confined space, it's such a, you know, I've been in, in the, in situations where you're in a confined space and you're fighting back and it's like very different from having room, you know, when you don't have room and you're that tight, it changes everything. And so I was like, in that situation, he's having to turn his back and run. He can't outrun her. He can't, you know, dash. He can't do all like, you know, vampire dash or whatever. He can't do all the things she can. And so his ability to be, you know, talented comes with like room, space, evasion, because he uses like a fencing sword. And granted, fencing fighters, you know, are face to face, but those fights are usually really quick because they're right there so i thought for him he would just be there's just too many disadvantages for him to be able to defeat someone with her speed so i like that you thought through like the actual logistics of the fight and weren't just like this is a good moment to put a conflict in (laughs) no i i just i i initially did and then when i started like really putting it together i was like there's just no way there is no way sometimes i think it's good too to have your heroes get like just smoked because then it's like surprising and it helps you like understand the stakes and the power difference. So, oh, for sure. And again, continues to give this credibility for Tasha being Fiona's like weapon of choice, so to speak, and how volatile she is. Yeah. Chapter seventeen. <laughs> all right. <laughs> all right. So Davion and all the vampires meet at Baron Elborn's castle. And Davin allows the vampires to offer evidence before he presents his own. Yeah, he's trying to make them nervous by... I think he's using that tactic where you just sort of stare silently at the group and wait for them to cough something up. But it backfires a little bit here because uh, (laughs) Fiona's the only one who has any evidence to offer up. And obviously we don't want to give her a platform because she's weaving a web of lies of her own. But what she has are the two envelopes from several chapters ago. And I'd honestly forgotten about them by now. So when I did not. I started sweating when these <laughs> envelopes came up. I, well, like, I knew what they were, but like I had put them in the back of my mind while we were reading until this moment. I was so worried it was going to be like obviously incriminating evidence of like, ah, Davion, my wayward friend. How are you doing with that plot to overthrow all your vampire friends? Sincerely. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been interesting. I mean, that, yeah, that would that would have been a unique change in the in the plot if that had happened right then and there. So, and then I was just gonna wait for all the other vampires to, like turn to make and then like end <laughs> roll credits. <laughs> well, he he only opened one letter, so we don't know if the other letter right. had we, that. We had Yasmin's letter, and then we have um, Peregrine's letter. Peregrine's letter, and he even mentions how. He was very candid with her, and she he trusted her, so he's worried, you know, what dirt might be in that letter. Right. So then Davion tries to, like, double-call Fiona's bluff in this moment. Mm. This is like a... I think this would be a moment that I would not do well in personally. I would get way too, like, nervous <laughs> and start doing that, like, nervous, like, giggle where you're like, ha-ha, nothing's, nothing could be wrong here. <laughs> nothing. <laughs> not my forte. Yeah. So he is like explaining how he obviously has letters because he's been appointed to do the investigation by the Elborns. And then Fiona immediately says, well, these letters are from before that. So it's like this back and forth between the two of them. 
And so Davion's like, fine, I'll open one of these letters in front of everyone because she's pushing him to do that. And luckily, it's just Yasmin's letter and it mentions how he has the mask from Karnath and that he wants to bring it to the Elborns through, I think, either Davion or Fiona. So nothing incriminating in there. It was already evidence everybody knew about. Yaspin always keeps it real. (laughs) (laughs) We can trust him. And so then Davion tries to turn the scene and put the blame on Fiona so that people forget about letter number two. And it works because he accuses her of only giving him the letters when it was a convenient time and how she should have given these to him much sooner. Uh, And he also like kind of backhandedly implies that Tasha killed the messenger uh, that gave her the letters. So he's not outright accusing her yet, but he's getting close. He's essentially saying her methods are unorthodox and that people should be wary of her. Mm -hmm. Again, destabilize, distract. (laughs) (laughs) Deflect, yeah. But then we get to the part where we finally figure out what Davion asked Count Vruticus to do in the previous chapter, and they're talking about how Fiona says she wants witnesses to these letters when she opens them because Davion had asked her about the Wayward's plot. So then Count Vruticus comes in clutch and he's like, what's this? The Wayward plot? And (laughs) really low balls it for Davion. Yeah, yeah. Nice little loft up there. Yeah, very helpful. He's... Calphurticus doesn't seem like the brightest bulb, so I'm glad he didn't mess this up. Yeah. <laughs> they use this to accuse Fiona. She just, like, doesn't respond to Davion at all. Yeah, she just does, like, the classic villain, like, glare, non-committal response. Which made me mad because... Because <laughs> <laughs> obviously she's not saying yes or no, but... Yeah, so the, the houses are shocked. And Baron Elborn gets mad at all the distractions and wants to see Karnath immediately. So this is where things start to go awry for our heroes. Because Davion's like, uh, sure, yeah, I'll take you to see him tomorrow. And Baron Elborn is like, no, right now. We're going right now. (laughs) Sure thing. He's right here. He's, uh, empty cell. Shit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And Baron Elborn gets scary. He threatens that if Karnath has to be brought by him before the next meeting or else he'll kill Davion and eviscerate the whole house. So I think Davion probably doesn't care about the second part of that no. threat. But, <laughs> I mean, House Veractus, everyone getting murdered. I feel like not there's any loyalty, but I don't know. He's been with them for a while, so I'm sure he doesn't want to unnecessarily cause them torment. He wants him destabilized and gone, but... I guess. Uh-huh. I mean, I, I don't know. He'll be dead if the threat comes true anyway, so... Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, definitely a good way to, like, make the plot go not the way the characters thought it was gonna go. They had this neat little ploy in their heads, and then a couple wrenches get thrown in because of Fiona's conniving behaviors, so... I think it's a good way to to like lower the chances of their success and make it look like they really have to like build themselves up before the end of the book. Right. And with Karnath being gone and Baron Elborn being furious, it just creates that sense of urgency. And, you know, as a reader, we're like, oh, God, where's Karnath? What's happening? What's going to happen? But then we get the answer in the next chapter. Oh, yeah. Immediately. <laughs> 
immediate reward payoff. <laughs> and Cardiff wakes up in chapter 18 in a cell that's lined with masks and potions. I immediately figured he was in like Fiona's. I thought it was like a workshop at workshop first. Workshop or yeah. lair, secret lair kind of thing. Um, but it's, is it actually connected to her castle or her house or is it somewhere else entirely? Uh, it's somewhere else. It's not connected to her castle, but it's something that she, you know, it's hers. But she keeps it secret because clearly, you know, with the way some of these vampire people are, she doesn't want to give access to their most powerful tool. Uh, she wants to, you know, keep it to herself. So Maintain the monopoly. Yep. yep. Yeah, and she has a, a monopoly here. There's another creature in this place with Karnath that seems like she has a monopoly on whoever he is. Yeah, he's um, like a troll-like creature or god named Ahman Rael El Kazir, and also known as Wrathfire. <laughs> and he's been tasked to create, and he is the one responsible for creating all the masks. Yeah, I was interested by this, because I thought Fiona was making them, so I like that it's more magic than a regular vampire can control produce. or produce. Yeah. Presumably... So- Fiona's a phony. <laughs> <laughs> she's in charge of the manufacturing, but she's not doing the welding herself, you know. Mm. So she's up in the up in the office at the top of the factory, just you know, making sure everybody else gets it done. So she's the foreman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> does she have to do any magic on the masks at all, or does this creature put all of the magical elements in for her? He does it pretty much all for her at her direction. Okay. So she gives him sort of what you know she wants from him and then this you know fallen god kind of puts together the the pieces the best he can so and then obviously we have this fallen god here and he's got three different names are these since i know you like to like reference things in your names are these callbacks to something else are these references to something uh yeah so i did a short story for a website's iron age media they had like a literature prompt and I did a story, uh, I think it, it, the, I can't remember the name of the prompt, but the story I did was a spike of foundation. And so it's about oh, a yeah. priest. Yeah. So this priest is basically trying to, he, his religious duty is to repeatedly call for this God of like creation to come to him in their like completely, you know, broken apart planet. And then he finally pulls this like God to him. Uh, so this point is actually like the in between for like this kind of is what happens to this god before he gets pulled away. Oh, or like vice versa. So I keep it kind of vague because I think it's fun to have more vague elements uh, that you have to really think about. So to but he's this god that's also featured in that in that story. So okay, cool. So are there? I guess because now we're touching on like the lore of your world. Are the gods something that could theoretically, like, interact with other intercontinents as well? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. and beyond. So the story that I wrote, the short story, takes place, like, somewhere far away, you know, from, you know, Montcroy and all that, a completely different place. Like, I guess you could say another solar system would be kind of the easy way to put it. Um, I tend to do that more so than, like, realms or... Um, multiverses stuff it's more just like multiple solar systems okay so yeah so when i looked at it i just you know thought like he you know he's get he came here first but yeah these gods can kind of be flexed around throughout intriguing yeah. I feel like there's a lot of again 
you leave a lot open for yourself to to pull on for other stuff. Yeah. <laughs> you looked like you were thinking of something. So. I know, and then I lost it. So, oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, I could add one more thing. I uh, I don't know if you've read the book. The I think the one that I'm thinking of. It's either Sailor on the Seas of Fate or The Weird of the White Wolf. It's an Elric book. It's one of those two. But there's a point at the end where he finishes this mission, and then he runs into this like giant, or he comes across this giant stone statue, who's like a voice for like one of these gods their main thing are, are law and chaos are kind of their two things and his sword also is the same way like his sword steals souls and is like um based around like that there's the sword is like an actual god and stuff that can talk to him whoa yeah so like i don't know in warbreaker i think there's like a sword that's like based on that sword because sanderson's a big fan of the elric books oh so he based like one of the swords off it i can't remember which one but yeah so that's the um that's something i came across when i was reading it and i thought like oh it's cool that he talks to this god voice he's you know hearing about all these possible plans in the future but there's nothing that is given to him concrete he's not given all the answers but he's given this little moment and it doesn't detract from the story. It just gives him, it just gives you a sort of like a bigger understanding that there's more beyond. So just kind of a little droplet of that. So that's what I wanted with this character was to give a little bit more of scope. But since this book isn't like a six to 900 page, like Stormlight Archive book or anything, <laughs> I don't fully explore that. I kind of leave that as like a nice little thing that people can have to go on in the future. Gotcha. Well, I think you like referenced it and maybe these are two different things, but when people get their snares, they have to go through spirits. Mm -hmm. They Is get the snares correct? from the spirits. Yeah. Yeah. Are the spirits and the gods kind of one and the same? Uh, they are two different sets of gods, but oh. these gods can interact. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So, yeah, long term, I, I plan on using these spirits. These spirits are almost like broken pieces of gods, like not the fully brought together. And then there's like other gods and. Yeah, there's a whole whole thing, but <laughs> Okay, so you That's got really like cool. like major gods and then minor gods or like, you know, lesser Yeah, gods or separate almost. or separate separate factions of gods. So, and maybe some are defeated and maybe some are not. Oh, I like the like mm. possibility with that kind of lore you can really expand upon. The god war. <laughs> <laughs> I got to get one of those super generic covers if I do a book called The God War. Like Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just a sword and a crown. Yeah. Nothing to do with good, just sword and a crown. And like a beige mannequin. Beige. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Throw that on there. Will they be on top? Question mark. I feel like if there was just a beige mannequin on a fantasy book cover, I'd be weirdly intrigued. That's yeah, so out of yeah. place. Yes, yes, yes. Because everything right now is just like that black with like line drawing gold yeah. kind of style. Yeah. Or, yes. Um, there's a lot like, of the very graphic-y designed covers right now. Yeah, it's kind of going one of two different ways. But like you read Atlas Six, and I feel like that black with just like some gold, Pulled like Art right Deco in. style, is very popular. I need to look this up now. At you said Atlas Six. Yeah. Don't bother reading it. <laughs> okay, I will definitely not if you told me no. Oh. <laughs> it's bad. I hate to say it on the podcast. I've said it before. I'll say it again. It was one of the worst books I've ever read in my entire <laughs> life. Oh my gosh. I know. I'm sorry. It just. But there's the so many. There's three. Yeah. Editor's Is it the Atlas pick. six, seven, and eight? Yeah, right. I don't know who got paid. 
this uh, author has a lot of content. I'm telling you, like, I actually almost want you to read it, Brian, just so I can get your unbiased opinion. <laughs> it's not unbiased now. You told oh, them well, it's not good. My Wait, opinion. now there's two, there's two authors listed. Is this, like, oh. the cover designer, or does she work with somebody? Oh, digital Ill- It's the illustrator. Okay. They put the illustrator oh. in the credits for the cover. Do you see what uh, I mean by the black and gold covers, though? Yeah, that's very popular. There's all so uh, popular, or like the ninth house or whatever. That one has like the black cover with the snake on it. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Serpent and Dove has that too. Dang, there's a bunch of now. I'm seeing tons of books with black and gold. It's super trendy. Yeah. All right, so you have to do gold and it's black. It's the ship lap of the book cover. <laughs> ship lap. So then, if that's the ship lap, what's the subway tile? Ooh. <laughs> so <Ooh>. bad. <laughs> I love that I dropped that bomb. That's so good. We'll get back to you. <laughs> now, okay, that's next week's question. If if black and gold is the ship lap, what is the uh, what is a the subway tile? A woman with her back turned to the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> I think yeah. I think black and gold is the the velvet couch that like everyone our generation has. Yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> and the woman yeah. with her back turned is the ship lap. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. There's a lot of like yeah, woman with their back turned looking off the mountain, all that stuff. Yeah. yeah, I have a back turned woman on my second book cover, so I fall, I fall unto the unto the trap of. The, At least it's got a lap. sweeping sci-fi landscape in front of her, and not just like the Eiffel Tower. Yeah, fair <laughs> enough. Or the beach. It's always the Eiffel Tower, the beach, or like a cloudy mountain. Wow! I also ran across there is a book that is a complete collection of all the Frank Frazetta covers. So I know what I want for Christmas now. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Just in time. That, yeah, that guy, I mean, his covers are just outstanding. There's nothing like it. Anywho. <laughs> Chapter 19. Whee. I feel like I had one final thing to say about covers, but I, I don't know. I feel like I could talk about them for a long time because <laughs> obviously I get drawn in by the covers so much and you're not supposed to. Which I, I know, know. Don't judge a book by its cover, but I will judge but a I will book But I will absolutely judge a book by its cover. You always judge a book by its cover. It's just the nature of it. Who's not going to put a good cover if you've, like, spent the time to write a whole book? Like, what are you going to do? Just, like, make it super plain and bland? Right. I mean, if you're traditionally published, you don't have any choice, so. Wait, really? You have no say. I didn't know that. That's done by the publishers. Fascinating and terrible. no say on the cover. So you're kind of relinquishing your creative control. That's part of the deal. But then can they change your story to what they want it to be? No, you have to work with the editors. I wonder if you get so famous though, like like J.K. Rowling when Harry Potter was coming out. Like she was so famous and established. I wonder if she got to put any say into her covers at all. Yes, or like George yeah. R. R. Martin, but like regular people don't actually. I didn't know that George R. R. Martin. I don't think he really puts any into his. I mean, we've you know seen those covers. I think his. It's like he put the book out and he kind of some some people don't want to have a ton of input on that. I don't know for sure how he is, but I mean, if I look at his covers and I'm like, I don't know, like the newer ones, not the really, really old ones, but yeah. the ones where it's literally just like a crown and it like. Yeah, those like mass market ones. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I will say Sanderson, he for the Stormlight Archive, he has Michael Whalen do the covers, who's a very famous uh, fantasy illustrator, fancy book cover illustrator from the 70s who did all the original Elric covers. Uh, or not original, maybe the second printing, but he did a bunch of the really famous Elric covers, and Sanderson had enough pull to convince the publisher 
to do that. I don't know how many of those covers he paid for himself because they're in like the thousands. Because I know some of the copyrights he's still trying to reacquire for that art. Whew. But yeah, and then for him, he's an interesting case study. So when Mistborn, the first one, came out, the cover was awful. And the book sold poorly because of it. Is that that cover that you costly say you hate, Sam? The feet? Maybe. So there's one cover that's like kind of a standard, like a bunch of people standing together that's pretty normal. And there's a, and then there's like a reissue hardback that's like all animated. But then there's one that came out like way, way, way back. It's really hard to find even online. And the cover was so bad. Like the guy, the guy actually isn't a bad illustrator, but they really rushed him to get it done. So it's like the proportions are off and you can tell they like shrunk it down. Looks really bad. And then um, he and his agent had to fight to get a recover. And the only way they would let him do a recover is if he wrote additional material because they didn't think the recover would matter. That's huh. fascinating. Yep. That's obviously not his first book, so he was already somewhat established by then. And to have such a bomb of a cover would be really disappointing as an author. <laughs> yeah, it was his second book that came out. Uh, not the second book he wrote, but the second book that came out. I'm going to see if I can find it. This cover. Can you see it? Ew. Yeah. It's so vague. Ew. Who is yeah, that? And, and it's that's that's supposed to be Vin. No. Why does she look That's a man like, named Frank. Like a 90s businessman. Yeah, with the weird messed up arm and the weird legs and stuff. So this was the original cover for Mr. I'm stuck Mistborn. on the receding hairline. I can't yeah. look past it. Holy moly, that's awful. Yeah, it was sad because this artist, like, he has other work that was actually good, but they literally just, like, he, he got, like, rushed, and it was, the publisher rushed him, it was really bad, and so then Sanderson and his agent were like, we, this, like, his career was on the line, he's like, look at this, we really need a recover, and so they were like, well, if you write more material, then we'll do it, because otherwise no one's going to buy it if it's just the same book with a different cover, which, that's why publishers make no sense and are kind of dumb, but, uh, yeah. Wow. I mean, that's like exactly why I think self-publishing has gotten so popular is because publishers are kind of dumb and they don't really always put out the books or approve the books that people want to read anyway. Yeah. Like, I don't think they really understand their own audiences sometimes. And they just they just want that ship laugh life. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's also interesting, too, because I've talked to traditionally published authors and one of them even said they're like, you know, the sometimes the way it works is if they deem that your book is going to be a hit then they put everything behind that author to like manufacture their hit status they will make them this that and the other and then there are books that really are hits i mean we know who those are but you know i've seen stuff where authors are like i'm a this that and the other bestseller and like whatever and i have all these accolades and yet nobody came to my signing in like new york city it's like okay how much of that is manufactured for your success Versus, mm. like, legitimately having a fan base. Now, granted, don't get me wrong, I've been to cons where nobody's there. But, you know, it's just, it's one of those things you have to look into when you're signing with these publishers. Is If they're going to make all those things happen, you're still responsible for building your fan base. You know, they can put you on any list they want. But you still, you know, need to get out and reach out a fan base in some way. Yeah. It Very is true. helpful to have, like, the power of the marketing machine behind them. Oh, but yeah. <laughs> until you connect with your correct fans, like, it's not going to... 
go over well. I feel like it's almost like the way Netflix promotes their own shows. And it's like, as soon as you turn Netflix on, they'll be like, this is the most popular show in America right now. <laughs> yeah, like, they're one, it? two, three, four, five, and you have no idea the streaming, like actual streaming analytics. It's just... Yeah, I'm like, I've never heard of any of these. But now that you keep pushing them, like, maybe they are good. I don't know. Or I can't even tell you how many times I've seen a movie trailer. It's like, the number one movie in America. I'm like, Every movie is that, apparently. <laughs> yeah, especially because, like... Second. <laughs> yeah, it's... Oh, man. Just silly. Yeah. You know what my other big problem with movie trailers is? They give away the whole movie now. Have you noticed yeah. that? Yeah. You see... Why go? If I watch a trailer and I like the movie, or I start liking the trailer, I stop the trailer. Because by the end of that two minutes, you already know the whole movie. Like, beginning, middle, end, all the best scenes. Yeah. Every movie's ruined by trailers now. It's wild. They need to just go back to the teaser trailers. You get like 30 seconds of cool footage and they cut it. Yes. Yes. 100%. That's all we need. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Shall we get back to our friends? I think I wrote a book. I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I wrote a book somewhere along the lines. Something I about love the, the anecdote. I love the anecdote stuff, though. This is oh, like fun, fun for me. I love yeah. talking Oh, shop. us too. It's way more fun than just being like, yes, let's go through the book bullet by bullet. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I like it. Plus, I feel like I learned interesting tidbits. Like, uh, I did not know stuff about the Mistborn cover. And how long have we been covering that book now? About a year. (laughs) (laughs) Awkward. (laughs) I love useless trivia and useless anecdotes. So Yeah. Well, we can use them. (laughs) I love them. All right. Chapter 19. (laughs) Davion is left his encounter with Baron Elborn. He's traveling through the swamps and he's nervous. He's actually praying to a god. So now that we've gotten this introduction to sort of the religious side of the world and the lore, it's coming up a little bit more. Uh, And he's actually thinking about how infrequently prayers or requests get answered, which I thought was kind of a interesting facet considering these gods are physical beings. It sounds like to answer the prayers, you have to like physically call the god and they come to you so that's pretty cool um he's currently playing to a god named varkin and i don't remember if you defined what varkin is the god of i probably did but i don't have the sentence in front of me okay (laughs) i tried to only because uh in my own mind it was a good way to make sure that if i continued putting them i would have like a reference point that i would know like okay this is the god of this because um, gotcha. I'm not the best note taker, so there, <laughs> I have like very little in notes on my stuff. It's like mostly in my head. So the books are almost in a weird way, kind of my notes. Well, you can always go back and like control F it. Oh yeah, that's definitely a thing. <laughs> <laughs> when I go back to Malcose, there's going to be a lot of control Fing on elements and potions because <laughs> yeah, otherwise they're gonna be like that's not that doesn't burn. So that's gonna be a thing. Yeah, it's hard to keep track of your own lore because you know there's readers out there that are way more detail-oriented than, at least like for me, like as I'm writing, I'm just kind of like writing stuff down and I'm like, oh, someone's going to come back and like notice that that is an inconsistency. I got to keep on top of it. I have like all these spreadsheets and everything now to like keep track of it all because I don't want to deal with control effing all the time. <laughs> That's a Continuity. good. That's the smart way to do it, man. I, did I ever uh, give you the anecdote on R.A. Salvatore and like powers and lore and stuff that he had to do? Uh, no, I don't think so. Okay, so uh, back in the day, because he his first books came out in like the eighties, I want to say he had written you know a ton of books, 
And he said what Wizards, because he was Wizards of the Coast because they owned uh, D&D, or he was with D&D, then they got you know bought by Wizards and all that jazz who owned Magic. Um, but the D&D people who owned it, they didn't, like, this is back in the day, like 90s, mid-90s, I think, when he was looking for this stuff, or late 90s. They didn't have, you know, good internet databases. They didn't have, you know, this easy access stuff. There's no Wikipedia. So they had, like, a lore master who basically was, like, an uber nerd about this stuff who would read and had read all the books and would, like, know a lot of info. Or if that guy would ever leave to get, like, a lucrative software engineering job or something they would have some intern have to read all these books and know all those lore and so he's like sometimes we'd have this guy who's supposed to read and know and literally they'd come to my house and i'd give them like a stack of hardbacks they'd have to read and they'd just look at me like oh god and then so what he would do is once the internet was around he would go on message boards as like a under a fake account and he would be like hey like how many times has so-and-so used like the bag of holding or like, what are all the powers that like so and so's defeated the enemy with? Or like, he would ask these like continuity questions, like he was a newcomer <laughs> on his own books, so that because he was like you know fifteen books in at this point, and so people would come on and be like, oh yeah, so and so did this and this and this, and this happened, and it was like a really cute way for him to figure out his own lore. That's awesome. <laughs> Gotta yeah. rely on the nerds. Yeah, <laughs> they'll remember. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I know, but that's so cool. It's like what a how what a cool uh, way to know your fan base like loves your stuff, you know? So. Yeah, that is actually really cool. Like they're spending that much time memorizing and learning. Yeah, yeah. We'll just that's have to do this again with the intercontinent books and be like, "What's Scoria's favorite meal?" <laughs> <laughs> God, I don't know. I haven't come up with all the Cretaceous food. So one day he would like something spicy. It's got to be like a curry. Yeah. Yeah, yes and yes. Great, answered. (laughs) We did it for you. World building. (laughs) Well, I feel like this book did such a good job of, like, introducing a culinary aspect of vampiric foods and wines where... No, Jared always had all those snacks in Treasure (laughs) He's always snacking. But I think it was, was like, unnamed chips and things. They did eat a rat? No, Gilman. He was the snacker. Yeah. And, they, yes. and okay. they gave him like the barbecued rat taco that he didn't know was like chopped up rat. <laughs> <That's right>. <laughs> <laughs> My wife hated that. Well, but, it was fun. It's very like Mad Maxi and the world. I would do that to somebody, but but yeah, no. I wanted when I thought about it. I'm like, what are things I can dive into about this culture? And I'm like, these people are very opulent. They have you know this high society nobility mindset. It's like. What do people of that sort do? They're traveling and eating. That's really all they do. I think you talk a little bit about their clothes, like a little bit more than you do in the other books, too. Like we get usually an update on what Fiona or Adelina's wearing just because, you know, they are opulent and they have time and money to to kill. That was also a criticism I had in my previous books was that I didn't describe how people looked enough. And you think that's because I had the illustrations, so in my head it was like easy to be like, oh, well, this person probably dresses similar to them. So that was mm-hmm. something I really tried to address in this book, was making sure people knew how they looked. Oh, well, that's pretty cool. Helps to get the feedback. And that's like yeah. an easy thing to address, too. Yeah. One other thing, speaking of like world building and stuff, is Davion is in this moment thinking about that god Varkin, uh, and then he mentions that vampires and werewolves keep their like snares and they can pass them on whereas other people have to get a snare from god or a spirit and so then 
did Davion have to get a snare from a god or a spirit specifically? Because I think he says like magic and or prayers or thoughts or an encounter with the spirit can get you a snare. Yeah, yeah. Theirs is an encounter with the spirit, sort of. It's like almost like a, and I think there's mentions of it later. But theirs is their whole snare is almost like kind of a kind of a bastardized perversion because generally the snares are supposed to almost be like an altering thing, like you're altered in some way. You're a vampire. You're a werewolf. You know, you become a witch or warlock, which also creates a little bit of madness in your mind. And generally, it's not like you just get an enhancement of your physical capabilities, which is mainly what the waywards all have. They just had physical enhancements. And so the guy that was their leader kind of had access to some some murky magic he could use to sort of give them a bastardized version of it, um, wow. which is why they had to kind of go through him for everything versus just other people who may like. And the reason I brought up the stuff about turning is because like a vampire could still turn someone into a vampire uh, mm-hmm. or werewolves. They're like tribes. So there's more to them in that way. Whereas like Davion can't just like pass on his snare in any way. He can't do anything more with it neither could like witches or warlocks they couldn't like necessarily pass on their snare the same way they'd have to have some type of magical like spell moment whatever you want to call it gala something <laughs> ritual gotcha. there we go they'd have to have a ritual <laughs> a, a gala <laughs> i don't know i was trying i was running out of words there but a uh, ritual they'd have to have like a ritual or a sacrament or something that would be like an event that creates this moment for them whereas for davion's group they're not really in in those places so they're more no like it's definitely a, like a bastardization version. yeah it's smart, though, to put that, like, little tidbit in there, because I feel like otherwise, if you don't define that aspect of your magic system, people are going to have a lot of questions about, like, well, how come the vampires are this way, and how come the waywards are this way? But, like, you just, like, you know, put it in there uh, in, like, a little moment where it, it fills a big potential hole in a magic system pretty easily. And speaking of witches... <laughs> yes, oh, man. Davion makes it back to Peregrine's house and sees that she is dead. Davion takes this loss quite hard. Even uh, Peregrine's death itself is very morbid and just unsettling with the vines growing around her in a weird continuation of magic in some way. So poor Davion, you know, he prays to a god for her soul's safety into the afterlife, but he's just devastated. You know, she was the last link to his his old life with the Waywards, and in a way it's him losing the waywards all over again. And he really is just not quite rock bottom, but he really is in a tough spot. I think one thing to be said about it too is like, that's the point of no return for his plot as well. Cause if it doesn't work out with Carneth, he can't go back to pretending to be a vampire. He has no more access to potion because she was his only ticket. So even though obviously he's sad that she's gone because they were friends, it's also a moment of like, he's got to be all in, with what he's doing now or he's going to get found out and die is the other option you know like he can't just let the clock run out and run out of potion and let the vampires find him like he's got to get moving with his plans with Carneth. again increasing yeah. that sense of urgency mm-hmm. and one thing he also finds with peregrine is a piece of tasha's hunting mask in the bum, wreckage bum, bum. of peregrine's hut <laughs> so thankfully she left behind a little some some breadcrumbs for him Mask bits. <laughs> <laughs> this crumbly bread mask. <laughs> <Yeah>, Crouton mess. <laughs> oh. um, but yeah, he puts that in his pocket for sure, because that's obviously great evidence. And he is then 
Actually, we don't know what he's really going to do with it yet. Obviously, he's going to reveal it to the Elborns at some point, but we don't get to see when because the scene changes and it's actually Yaspin going to Elborn Manor with his mask. And he is there with Fiona, who has agreed to sponsor him, which makes me a little bit nervous for Yaspin. <laughs> not the yeah. most trustworthy sponsor, you know? No, <laughs> you do not want to be in her debt. <laughs> no. She'll make you pay twice. Yeah. And then he also brings another character, Thavin, who is a vampire who works for him. And I don't really know if Thavin is someone who comes up again that much. But again, you always like just give your side characters a name so that you can use them again in your future books, which is smart. Yeah. But there's a huge reveal at the end of this chapter because Yaspin brings the mask up before Baron Elborn. And they go through this whole formality rigmarole where Yaspin can't speak directly to Baron Elborn. He has to speak through Fiona and it's... Awkward and uncomfortable, but they finally open the box. Yes. And they thought that Yaspin had the third mask of the three that were worn by the vampires killed in the beginning of the book. And the one that he has is actually a forgery. They think Karnath himself must have the last mask. And again, uh, Baron Elborn is like, enough. Where's Karnath? We need him. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) and we do finally get like the payoff though because in chapter 20 we see that Karnath does have the third mask which we got a little confused at one point like we had lost track of the masks ourselves the way the vampires did and we were like no Fiona has the third mask because she looked at it at a different point then we (laughs) like we, we got confused with the characters which was kind of a fun moment like Sam and I had a little argument of like where are all three of them and we couldn't we couldn't keep track which is fun. Yeah. Chapter 20 and the last chapter we're covering ends with Karnath. We're back in his cave. He's been talking to Ahman Rail slash, what were his other names? L-Z. Oh, yeah. I mean, those names are basically, <laughs> basically since he's a god, like the idea is I was alluding to the fact that as a god, he's like named differently by different civilizations. Oh, yeah. I just wanted to say them all because they were cool, <laughs> like fantasy. Yeah, names. I know Al-Kazir because I think Al-Kazir is the one from the short story. I don't oh, remember. Elkazir. Oh, yeah. And Wrathfire. That's just a yeah. cool name in general. That one's a yeah. good one. That's a good one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so they've been talking. They've been hanging out. Karnas has been eating his oatmeal. Uh, they're becoming <laughs> yeah. best buds. <laughs> yeah. You ever just have oatmeal and life talks with your favorite god? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and so we made like a list of all these things that Karnath has deduced through a conversation, which is that Fiona has entrapped this god. He could produce the masks and potions. And then he will be free once Fiona dies. He is a fallen god of foundation. And Ahman created the disguise snare potion used to initially entrap the waywards. So he's been entrapped for at least 10 years by Fiona. And I think he said at one point that he was entrapped by somebody else originally. And Fiona somehow took over that. Or unless Fiona was one who entrapped him and Tasha took over it. He made it vague enough where we weren't sure. Under new management. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So one big payoff is that we get in chapter 20. Karnath does actually have the third mask. It was hiding in plain sight. And he is the bearer. It was wrapped around his leg. Smart spot to put it. He's lucky Tasha didn't find it. Yeah. He used it to project an image of the creature of death. 
And it sounds like the way the masks work is that you have to imagine what you want yourself to look like, and then they will manifest that. So he pictures this sort of like skeletal, hairy, goat, spooky death creature, which I'm assuming is conveniently for him a god that's higher than Amon Rael. And so then Amon's scared when he sees this. You outrank me. (laughs) (laughs) Or a warring god. Ooh. Oh, God okay. <laughs> yeah. It's a beige mannequin. <laughs> the beige mannequin returns. Uh, the beige mannequin's the most powerful, and you know it. Blink slate. <laughs> so, yeah, Karnath uses that. He scares Amon, and Amon's did earlier say, I think you're more than just a prisoner. So it actually like played into his own fears that Karnath was somebody in disguise. And then... Karnath hilariously, this is such like a dungeon crawl moment, but he gets past this little barrier and he goes out into a hallway th- where there's more potions and more masks and he just stashes as many yes. as he can. <laughs> I mean, come I, on, why not? Get the loot. It get was the so loot. smart. Well, it's like everyone in any video game book or movie like has a moment like that. You're like, oh, you should take the goods and run. So Karnath knows what's up. He does what yep. we want him to do. He lets his intrusive <laughs> intrusive thoughts in for the win. <laughs> and he decides that he has to go and find Davion. So Davion's looking for him. He's looking for Davion. Baron Elborn's looking for Karnath. It's a big triangle of who's looking for who. Tasha's still out there somewhere. Fiona's looking for Karnath. It's getting complicated. Yeah. Yeah. We're coming into the final stretch, I think, pretty soon. So we definitely have some like questions that still have to get addressed about how Carnith and Davion are going to pivot from here because their plan hasn't worked. Uh, we have to know what Davion's going to do with that piece of mask that he finds. We have to know how he's going to confront Fiona. How he's going to reconcile his past and what actually happened step by step for the Waywards and their fall. Yeah. Uh, we need Karnath to be able to have his closure of laying his father to rest. There's lots to be done and chapters to be read, and I'm excited to find out what happens next. Me too, even though technically I already know. <laughs> Love it. Thanks, listeners. If you're looking for more, check us out at fantasticbookspod.com, where we have book reviews, reading list suggestions, merch, and you can even send us a message. Or find us on Facebook and Instagram at Fantastic Books Pod. And if you like what you've been hearing, don't forget to leave us a review. Thanks. Thanks. Golden Rise Media.